The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, James Anderson, and... Uh, this week, we will be recapping the Arizona Fall League, which just wrapped up. Uh, I know a lot of great scouts and, and people that write about prospects were out there, but had to go to my guy, Chris Welsh, who was out there for the entire Fall League season and you know saw everyone and has a really good perspective on this stuff. So I uh, really appreciate you joining me, Welsh. How are you doing? I'm doing good, James. I'm loving the fit you got going on. It is the it is the true testament between you where you live and where I live. I'm like t-shirt and shorts and you've got the big jacket. Are you missing Arizona weather a little bit? Well, I didn't really get Arizona weather when I was out. That's true. Um so I I am I'm always missing uh what I think of as sort of you know, prime sort of spring training y type of Arizona weather. Uh but didn't really cold. get that this time. Yeah, the AFL guys, they actually got a little treat, I feel like. They got an entire season of type of baseball in one like six-week period because it started with like high 90s. You know, when the sun gets on you, it was like 100, and that was the first couple weeks. And then it all of a sudden started raining. It got cold, and we had like – we had one night where there's like 40-mile-an-hour winds, and we had just like crazy chills down to like the low 50s. So these guys got a whole lot of different running perspective. But uh, I'm excited to talk about it, and I was excited to hang with you for – just a little bit in the AFL. I did miss a couple games, but we got to hang for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was, that was definitely not enough hanging, um, no. but uh, some stuff got in the way and uh, you know, we'll, we'll do it again um, next year, hopefully. Uh, but before we talk about the AFL, uh, there was a pretty big trade that, that broke about a half hour before we're recording here. On uh, Wednesday morning, my time, uh, the Blue Jays sent Teoscar Hernandez, who's under contract for one more year, to Seattle for uh, Eric Swanson, who's coming off a, a good year as a reliever for the Mariners, and then Adam Mako, who I know you saw in the AFL. Uh, what what were your sort of initial reactions to that trade? You know, my first reaction was like, whoa. You know, like what's happening here? Because I think, you know, the fantasy perspective of, uh, for myself comes into play. And I'm thinking Tay Oscar, you know, a very good serviceable outfielder in fantasy, maybe worse in real life baseball. I was really actually intrigued by the 
the Twitter take on it where it was two sides. It was what the hell are the Blue Jays doing? And then the Teoscar is washed and not as good as anyone thinks. And those were the two takes that were with it. Because at the end of the day, the haul isn't immense. Uh, it's two relievers, ultimately, that they're getting. Uh, I saw Mako in the AFL, like you said, and I thought he looked pretty good. Uh, really nice curveball. Pretty good discrepancy between you know the highest and lowest velocity on pitches. He showed off, I believe, four different pitches. Got some swing and misses. That's what he did in the minors. But there's questions about him being a starter and his size and stuff like that. So, you know, if you ended up getting two relievers that are relatively close for Teoscar, it seems light. But the $14 million contract under one year, that kind of changes a little bit. And yeah, like Teoscar's aggressiveness is kind of known. He's getting into the 30s, which a lot of people were saying like, oh, he's getting into his 30 year like. That doesn't mean he's out. Sometimes that's prime for some of these guys. So Teoscar already hit it, but it's a 25 plus homer uh, guy with a 260 batting average. that's going to go into Seattle, have, uh, you know, as much protection as he had in Toronto. I think he's going to be able to produce relatively well. I think I'm still, even though I've had time to kind of like sit on it and maybe it's a little bit more even. I am. It is curious to me that Toronto would unload somebody with that type of offensive output for just a couple bullpen arms because they still want to compete. You know, they're not selling off. So regardless of having one year, I am a little bit surprised by it. Um, but, you know, hey, selfishly, I'm going to get to say I see Teoscar in a couple months out here over in the Mariners backfield. But uh, what did you think this was a low return? Or are you on the side that this kind of made sense based on age production and contract? Uh, I think it's just sort of two very different philosophies. Uh, I think from Toronto's standpoint, it's kind of like a, a spreadsheet trade where they're just sort of, you know, they see that they've only got one more year of, of Teoscar. Um, he was worth like two and a half wins last year playing in 131 games. Uh, I think the market is going to be more favorable for signing a quality starting outfielder on the free agent market than signing a quality reliever. I think those those sort of early reliever free agent signings we've seen already sort of indicate that because all these teams that are trying to win World Series, they all need relief help for the most part. And so there's there's always sort of a bidding war there, whereas a lot of these teams have plenty of outfielders. So there's not quite as much uh, competition in that area of the market. Um, I mean, from Seattle's standpoint, that's to me just they're, they're doing everything they can to put the best team together uh, that they can. And I, I really appreciate that. Uh, mindset um you know i think like eric swanson was coming off his best year but uh still sort of a spare piece for them uh you know mako this is kind of just sort of an obvious time to trade him uh even though he is coming off a an, an afl where he he turned some heads uh, at times he just got over 50 innings and that's his career high in innings so like you kind of alluded to, I think you got to sort of assume that he's probably a reliever long-term. I'm sure the the Blue Jays will try to develop him as a starter, but um, I think it was just the Blue Jays seeing like how much 
like, can we make our money stretch here? Like I, I see they're already in on like Brandon Nimmo. Um, they maybe sort of viewed it as like, we were getting our reliever, our free agent reliever and Eric Swanson. And then we're replacing them with, with Nimmo. Um, I think that so, makes I mean, a lot of sense. If, if they've already seen who the replacement is, if they already had that in mind and they knew that we're replacing Teoscar and they're able to get two back in rotation pieces, which you could argue Swanson could be the setup man for Romano and Mako is just a, you know, probably a utility knife reliever where he can be a, maybe a spot starter. They could throw him into long relief if they want. And he's just a utility reliever that they don't have to go spend on the market in relief and that they covered two spots, or at least one was Swanson, and they already had their placement in hand. I guess it makes more sense. It makes more sense on paper, but just like the trade itself just still doesn't, it just feels light. That's what I tweeted. It just it's, feels right. Light. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the sort of fantasy, like we just live on fantasy Twitter, right? And yeah, exactly. So everyone, like I've never been, I've never gotten in on Teoscar at his cost. I've always... Like I, I know last year he was going like sort of borderline second round, uh, which I I didn't really have any interest in, and like obviously no one's drafting Eric Swanson in fantasy. Most people haven't heard of Mako, so everyone who's coming at this from a fantasy lens is gonna sort of take the same sort of bent on it there. But uh, you know, I think the the Blue Jays, you know, Teoscar probably fits best at. DH like maybe he could be your worst defensive outfielder if you're not going to play him at DH but they sort of have you know they want to get guys like Kirk uh, work at DH they want to be able to rest Springer um, when he's dealing with injuries and Lourdes Gurriel's not a great defender so I you know I I, I get it from both sides but um, I I think I'd be pumped if I were a Mariners fan because um, this is the type of trade where it's no skin off their back really. Right. Like they're, exactly. they're not going to miss Swanson. They've got a loaded bullpen still. They're not going to Mako probably isn't going to reach the majors for a year or two if he's kept developing as a starter. So um, do you think that's also like, um, is Hanneker a free agent? Because when I look at this and you say DH, I'm going through this and thinking, well, I mean, roster resource on fan graphs, they have Teoscar at right field, which I'd imagine is not going to happen. I'd imagine you put him in left field. But if Hanniger is there, you know, who is playing DH and what does this ultimately mean for Jesse Winker? Are we finally going to see Jesse Winker off this team with all the rumors of the bad teammate or whatever it was, you know, the the bad work ethic not making sense. They just, All they did was they went and acquired something they already have a glut of. And how are they going to parse this out? And again, that's why it's hard to break these down sometimes because the Blue Jays might look really smart once they go and make their move for their outfield play. And the Mariners might already have some stuff in the works for, I mean, you know, just theorizing, but with Kelnick or Taylor Trammell, I mean, they have a glut. You can't go into the, um, into the season with this many outfielders. They've got to make a change somewhere. And I just don't know what it is. And they just brought in another piece, but you know, that's why the rest of the offseason will probably answer it. But either way, it does seem kind of like a, a win-ish win if you look at the long-term picture, but I know Blue Jays fans are not thrilled about it. Yeah, Hanniger is a free agent, and uh, it does seem like they would pretty much just take like a low-level prospect for Winker at this point. So, um, yeah, definitely don't think that the chips are settled there. But uh, if you have Teoscar and Julio kind of penciled in, 
Uh, Julio's obviously going to play the outfield a bunch. Teoscar can kind of go bef- between right field and DH a little bit. Um, that at least kind of gives you a, a better idea um, where things are, are headed there. Um, all right, let's get to the, uh, the AFL. Uh, what was your sort of – what were sort of your highlights of the – AFL, um, just from your personal um, perspective, whether it was like someone you talked to, someone you you watched and, and saw something really impressive or, or just maybe a theme or something like that? Um, yeah, there's a couple things. Uh, you know, like a physical play of a highlight was probably the Inside the Park Homer by Heston Kirstead, which uh, in that same game, actually, there were two uh, Inside the Park Homers hit by the same team. Heston hit it like in the first inning. I think it was off of Brian Wu, also with the Mariners. And then like three innings later, Cal Conley hit one. Cal's was kind of cheap, but Heston's was pretty awesome. Getting to see one inside the park, let alone two in one game. And that was kind of just like a big, you know, big moment there. Uh, Getting to see Lawler on display. um, I have a funny video where he does not think he hit a homer. And I kind of, you can hear it and then it goes and goes and it travels out. And I kind of yell to him and he, he's like, I did not think that was going, which is always fun when the players want to interact. And, you know, watching a guy like Zach Veen was kind of a highlight. If I'm being really honest, it was, um, it was amazing how critical I've kind of been of him long-term and seeing the base stealing. I mean, if you want to talk about changes and themes that went on all of baseball's you know, new rules were on display here and you saw what it impacted. It impacted left-handed hitters finding more success and not, you know, not being shifted on in Heston Kirsten, the bases being bigger and the throw over, which I can only throw over to first twice, absolutely had an effect on some of these guys in their base dealing because we saw Johan Rojas uh, stole six, 16 bases and he missed like the last two and a half weeks of the league. And Zach Veen, every time he was on base, was um, just going bonkers. And early on, there was this huge trend of these guys not only stealing for, uh, second, but stealing third. I, I saw Mason Auer, uh, Zach Veen, and Johan Rojas all do that here. Johan Rojas even stole home while he was out here. So, you know, the the new rule changes had a big effect. And, and one thing, it was really of a bummer that was so limited, but we got to saw the instant replay system, which was kind of a highlight to see because, you know, I think about everything I saw here and I'm going to see in major league soon. And the instant replay system was actually pretty cool and effective and quick. And I saw uh, both sides win it. I saw umps be vindicated and I saw players get their ball call from a strike. And I wish it had gone the whole way through the AFL because I think that would have been something everyone would have really enjoyed. But you know, all the rule changes were big. Some of the players on display, there were some really unique moments, like I said, from an inside the parker to almost no hitters. It was a pretty good AFL. Yeah, and then my sort of favorite moments were uh, probably nothing necessarily at the ballpark, to be honest. I, I mean, I went to a, a couple games. I went to the Home Run Derby. Um, but... Uh, just getting to meet, like I got to meet uh, Ian Khan and Jeff Ponce in person for the first time. Got to hang out with them. Uh, got to meet a lot of um, people that subscribe to the site and and chat with them. And um, just that that part was always a blast for me. I I got to 
donate a bunch of well not a bunch of money i donated 60 bucks a little in bit the poker room um, that was one of my favorite moments by the way uh we were at one of the games i was with uh frank stanfull from cbs me and frank were together and we had a couple people and i i drove some people over from the i think it was the scottsdale game and uh and we were at the hotel and we grab a drink and then we find the room and it is freezing out by the way that night. And we, and it's this like little room in the Mesa hotel. I don't want to call it like a closet, but it's like way smaller than we've seen before. And I just walk into this room and it's just like Jeff Erickson, Je- uh, James is over here in the corner with chips. Ian Khan is right here. Like Ian was kind of like dominating, sprawling out on the table. It was just a very funny moment to walk in. And it's like Ian Khan, James Anderson, Jeff Erickson, serious poker chip playing. Uh, I always actually kind of like appreciate those moments of like, you don't know when you walk into a room who you're going to be hanging with and uh, standing with. And uh, that was, that was a fun moment of seeing that little tiny poker room we had, but it was, you know, you and Ian just dominating the tables. Well, I don't, I don't remember exactly what, when you walked in, but, uh, Ian, Ian played very well. Uh, Ian did very well for himself. Uh, I might've had, uh, some chips when you walked in, but you had a big stack, but it, uh, you, you you came over and walked over and talked to me not too soon after that, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. Um, had a great time hanging with, uh, with all those, all those people. Um, how much, so, you know, w- there's always going to be offensive statistical standouts in the Arizona fall league. Uh, the, the pitching's just not as good as the hitting, uh, it's hitter friendly conditions in the first place. Uh, how much does it matter for you? when these guys who are sort of age appropriate, like let's say, you know, 22 years old, 23 years old, uh, how much does it matter for you when those guys do well in the AFL or is it kind of case by case? It's kind of case by case. I mean, like I want to see the best players play well. Like it's pretty easy. Like we all, we, we really focus hard on saying, Hey, don't pay attention to AFL stats and stuff like that. That's true. Um, you know, I give a big pass to the young players that kind of struggle. Davis on de los Santos didn't play well here, uh, but he was like the second youngest player, I think here. And one of the lower leveled players that moved up. So I didn't expect him to have really great results. You know, you've got a lot of older guys, you've got a lot of older relievers that are out there, um, that it's just stuff he hasn't seen. And he's probably a little bit more hyper aggressive, but you know, to your point, like I do want to see guys. I want to see them dominate when you've had enough experience. So like, here's a good example, Robert Perez Jr. He was really tough to battle because from an age appropriate standpoint, he's age appropriate. The guy's like 22 something, but from a level perspective, he didn't move really far. I think he only went to high A this year and he spent, he might even be closing in on 23 if I'm being honest. I just am forgetting his age right now, but he was older for the levels he played in, in the minors. So coming into the AFL, I had a little bit higher expectations of a guy like that. And early on, he struggled, swung through a lot of stuff. He kind of found his rhythm a little bit later. He ended up winning the home run derby, showed off some real power, but like I'm paying attention to those type of players. And then obviously guys that hit triple a, you know, 24 year old, like I want to see those guys play well. And now, even if they play well, does it mean like, Oh, I'm going to be all in on them? No, it's just like, 
there's a bar of expectations that you're going to hit. But I think ultimately the best way to say it is it, it is kind of a case by case basis because also, you know, I know you've dealt with this as well. Like with the COVID year, it kind of just altered everything where it's like the age appropriate levels. I feel like have been affected for a couple years. So even Robert Perez, like Robert Perez would be a prime example of a player. I probably would have had little interest in it's like, Oh great. You know, he did really well in high a, okay, but he's 22 years old, blah, blah, blah. But it's like the, the push from the COVID year and how much work these guys got and the maturation at levels, I think kind of just adjusted. I mean, Matt Mervis started in low a this year or high a this year, and he moved those three levels. I mean, so I think that, altered a little bit that gives me a little bit more of a pass that I would say like case by case basis uh, for sure, especially this year. Yeah. Robert Perez, uh, he, he turns 23 in June, uh, but like has not, has not played at double a yet Uh, won the home run derby. I was uh, behind the plate for that uh, with uh, I think Rob Silver and Bubba and Bloomfield and uh, some others. I kind of regretted well, I don't know. It would have been fun to be in the outfield um, yeah. for parts of the derby, but it would have been less relaxing. I didn't really want to be running around or risk some kids like running into my legs. Was that say you didn't want to knock over a couple kids <laughs> for some baseballs? <laughs> um, but Perez uh, did not get added to the forty man uh, yesterday, so like that kind of tells you where he is uh maybe he gets taken in the rule five draft but uh yeah i mean he's he had a impressive showing in the derby but still not deemed to be someone that the mariners needed to protect yeah and i Uh, think they knew that i think they they came off of that like the home run derby meant nothing but they came off of being like hey listen you know defensively he's not really incredibly impressive he didn't show great bat to ball skills he didn't show like a really great eye he he could hit some mistakes and he's like a big uh, he's edbert perez's uh, brother by the way people don't know that um uh, he's a like a physically impressive like he's a muscled up dude mm-hmm. but i just don't think there was any worry that any team is going to swoop him up based on the level that he had pushed and really how he performed at the afl it was fine but it wasn't something where a t- uh, team was like wow we've got to get this guy on because we can get him going this year i don't think anyone thinks he can produce this year so that's one of those interesting cases of like he kind of became a name a little bit later on with the home run derby, but he just really didn't necessarily impress. And he's a guy that you would have had much higher expectations because there's plenty of guys, you know, at older ages that had some pretty, there are performances from this, from the AFL that just quietly went under the radar, like TJ Rumfield with the Yankees hitting 400 that just quietly happened. And that was a guy that you want to see perform. Tyler Hardman with the Yankees as well. Tyler Hardman hit a whole bunch of homers, hit six for 325. This is what you wanted to see out of those guys. We didn't get that from Robert Perez. So that's, you know, case by case. So uh, my next question is like, I don't really, yeah, like for the most part, like if I were to answer my own question there, like I generally don't really, like if someone was supposed to do well and they did well, you know, great. Like they're not, they're not going to move down the rankings, but they're probably not going to move up. Um, but it is nice when a player ha- is coming off kind of a, a down year. Maybe there were injuries or just they failed to live up to expectations. It's nice when a player like that 
goes to the AFL and is really impressive. Uh, I kind of think back to 2019 Royce Lewis, like that was totally. a huge um, kind of moment for him. I think he kind of had a reset there and sort of was able to get his swing figured out in the AFL after, after sort of a down minor league season. Uh, does anyone like that come to mind for you from, from 2022? Yeah. The number one player that jumps out when you say that is actually uh, Royce Lewis uh, teammate in Austin Martin. Austin Martin is the guy that immediately jumps out. Now I will say he did a lot more of what he did in the season where this past season, he had 35 stolen bases, only two homers, which is pretty brutal, but he only hit 241 in the AFL. When he came out here, he was second in hits hitting 373, which you love to see. He had six doubles. He did have a homer. He walked more than he struck out. He stole 10 bases, was caught only once and had an under uh, 1,000 OPS. You know, Austin Martin's hit tool has been the biggest question following him for years now. And what I thought was, I thought he walked into this, even though he had the name power, as incredibly mediocre, probably no one we needed to care about. And, you know, he had no power. Stolen bases would be whatever. And he came in and he did answer one question you didn't want, is there's just really not a lot of power. It's just not there with Austin Martin. I saw him square up on some pitches that guys with any relevance of power would have smashed out, but he's just a doubles hitter. So unfortunately that got answered. But the other thing that happened was I got to on display almost, I mean, I saw him maybe more than anybody else was the elite takes early on. He was hitting like lead off or hitting second and his approach the whole time looked great. He wasn't striking out. He struck out seven times in the entire Arizona Fall League. He made tons of contact. You see some absurd walk numbers in the Fall League because of the pitchers. And he still just made the He only walked eight times. I mean, seven strikeouts, eight walks, and he hit 373. Second in hits, made tons and tons of contact. And he flew around the bases. He was aggressive on the base paths. And, you know, what it kind of said to me is, all right, he might be, unfortunately, an AL number nine hitter, but he's got the potential to be a leadoff or number two hitter because he can steal bases at a really nice clip. But, you know, at the end of the day, from a fantasy perspective, he's going to be limited on power. You can hope he can hit double digits, maybe 10 or something like that, but he could legit steal 30 plus stolen bases. So he's not like this elite fantasy option, but I thought, and I kind of feel like an industry thought, was Austin Martin was absolutely nothing. And I think the AFL kind of opened up some eyes to maybe rethink where we were with him off of a mediocre season. You know, and there's other answers to this. Uh, I think we've got other questions that'll kind of jump up to some of those players. But, you know, if I can only throw out one other guy, not into great detail, it's like Heston Kerstead too. His was more to injury. I don't think he did anything. Imp- I think he was a post 100 prospect to every single person. And he came out here and showed uh, very, very uh, hyper aggressiveness. But he came out here and showed some like really elite bat to ball skills with some pure, pure power. And if he can hone in the strikeouts, that's like a 30 plus homer guy. So I thought those two players, and by the way, Heston was number one in hits and won the MVP out here. So it's like the top two players in hits. I thought were very mediocre in most people's minds. And I really think Heston is easy inside the top 100 for many. I don't know if Martin will be because the power, the suppression of power is always a bugaboo for everybody, but I think he's more valuable than being given credit for. So uh, yeah, I think those two guys answered those, that question. What did you think about Martin's uh, defense? Because I think, 
I agree with pretty much everything you said about him, but for him to play a lot with that type of power, like I think just project, you know, single digit homers for him. He's got to be bringing something to the table defensively. Yes. uh, I thought he played a solid shortstop, but he also played outfield. He played center field out here. Actually, somebody asked him one of the days that he, I feel like, I think he was shortstop the majority of the early run of the AFL. Um, you know, he would have some days off and Matt McLean would come in at shortstop and it was a pretty stacked team, that Glendale team. They made it to the championship. They're, they're pretty stacked overall. One time they even had Yorbit Vivas with the, um, uh, with the Dodgers and early on. And I think this was a plan for them. It was Austin Martin at shortstop and he looked good. I didn't see any bad throws, you know, like Nick Gonzalez did not look good. They had him playing some short again. Did not doesn't work. He's not a good shortstop. Uh, you know, bobbling balls, bad throws. I didn't see that from Austin Martin. But the second half of the AFL, he moved into the outfield. And one of the first days he moved in the outfield, someone had asked, like, oh man, they got you playing the outfield now. Uh, what do you think about that? And Austin was like, I'll play anywhere. And he doesn't care. He will play anywhere. And that's it's actually kind of, I think, a curse with the twins right now, because my God, that is their entire roster on the infield. My big argument, I want to go to the moon with Edward Julian. Um, but the thing with Edward Julian is, is they've got a whole bunch of guys that can play everywhere, just like he can. He can play first, think he can play third, he can play second. But they've got those guys. They've got Miranda, they got Arise, they got Royce Lewis, who did the exact same thing out here. So ultimately, I just, I couldn't properly predict when people ask me like, hey, do you think Edward will be up in the majors? I want to say, yeah, I do. But I don't know how quick because they've got all these guys that can play everywhere. And Austin has the exact same ability. The only difference between him and Julian is he can play in the outfield, similar to how Royce Lewis does. So the flexibility is nice, but sometimes the flexibility is just going to keep these guys off of uh, full go. So I think that's the big positive about him. He can absolutely play shortstop. He is not their shortstop in the future, though. I can almost guarantee you that. I think it will be primarily in the outfield is where they'll put him, but he offers, he offers a flexibility that, you know, they might not have to carry other players because let's say Royce is their shortstop, which I would assume is going to happen. Austin could play in the outfield and then he could just replace him. It's kind of like a Josh Rojas. I actually see Austin Martin as Rojas light without the power. You just really like cross your fingers that Martin is going to step into some of that power, but that's how I would kind of, uh, think about him. Yeah. I like that comp. Uh, probably, bringing a bit more defense than Rojas and sadly a little less power. Yeah. Um, I, the power. I just like, dude, ever since you said Vanderbilt, I kept trying to be like, this guy makes just, he was a great contact hitter at Vandy. And I really thought like the, you know, that whole power's last tool to develop, it could happen. And it's just not there with him. And I don't know what the team does and maybe he gives up on it. And maybe he's just one of those guys, you know, maybe he's maybe the, the ceiling, the absolute ceiling for him is a Whit Merrifield and the floor, you know, ends up being, unfortunately, you know, the, I'm, I'm forgetting the names right now, but like the five, you know, the five Homer 40 stolen base type of players, those empty players that you have to stack with homers. I just wish it would happen. I just don't know if it is his approach just isn't power based. Yeah, man. Uh, looking back on that, that draft class uh just i was so high on austin martin and nick gonzalez and uh you know what i mean what were you gonna do with um uh torkelson i mean like but just hasn't hasn't been a great 
class. Um, which, which I think is shocking. Like if, if you go back and, and like, if you put yourself back into that time period, we'd have been like, this might be one of the best draft class ever. Like, this is going to be amazing. And it just is not. It is and it not. was so exciting for dynasty because they were college hitters. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, uh, that's the MLB draft is, is really tough. Uh, yep. all right. We're going to talk a little bit more AFL with Welsh. Uh, but first a message from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. So uh, I remember last year, uh, I think you came on the pod around the same time uh, to kind of recap the AFL. Uh, I didn't make it out there last year. And uh, I think I asked you just sort of, you know, who was someone that really kind of exceeded your expectations and, and stood out in, in a positive way. And your answer was Logan O'Hoppy. And uh, he's obviously, his stock has just been um, soaring ever since then. And yeah. it's really kind of creeping up uh, this off season as the redraft community kind of uh, looks at that depth chart uh, with the angels and looks at what he did, especially after that trade. Uh, so everyone's just loving Logan O'Hoppy right now. Uh, is there any prospect who kind of, is in a similar mold of a guy who, cause Ohapi was a, he was a real prospect going into the AFL. Like he wasn't like those Yankee guys you're, you're talking about. Like, I mean, Ohapi was a real prospect, but he wasn't yeah. anyone, he wasn't someone that people were really excited about. Um, and then the, the AFL was sort of his coming out party. 
Uh, does anyone sort of fit that mold from this year's class? So, okay. So I think there's a lot of different answers because it's tough to your point. I would say Edward Julian, but I feel like Julian was more of a prospect. I mean, if you would accept that he was in the same kind of walk-in as Logan Ohapi, I think that's the easy answer. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if we would. I don't know if because he might have had a little bit more juice than Ohapi. People were talking about him. But, you know, Edward, and I'll give you a couple names here because I thought Edward was one of the most impressive players here. He was a little bit tentative, which you'd like to have seen kind of come off a little bit. Uh, played a solid second base. He was stealing bases. He, I think he walked the most. He had 23 walks. He got really aggressive towards the end with 22 strikeouts, hit 400 out here. I mean, he had a four, five, six slash and he just had, he has one of the most technically beautiful swings and he definitely didn't have, I don't think he had quite the juice of like the Mervises coming in and obviously the big players, but that was one of those players that my immediate thought to where Logan was Edward was, and this was like an award-winning type of player. If you were moving down a little bit, one player that I think really had much of nothing uh, out here that I thought played pretty well offensively was Colt Keith with the Detroit Tigers. Now, they played him at third, and I don't think he can play third, which I think is going to be kind of a problem because Torkelson's at first. I don't know if they would explore anything, but Colt missed a whole bunch of time this past year. He hit 344 out here. He hit three homers in only 19 games, around 60 at bats. He had some doubles in there. He had as many walks as strikeouts. He had 16 strikeouts, but 16 walks. He even stole three bases. Um, bigger frame, big wide frame, uh, could hit to all sides of the field. The final game of the regular season, he had an opposite field homer, which is on my Twitter at Is It The Welsh if you want to see the power. So I think the easy answer if it will be uh, stricken into the record books is Edward Julian to be this year's Logan O'Hoppy. But if he was a little too known, I think Colt Keith kind of fits that because that's a, that's a bat. I think if he had had more at bats this season, I think he'd probably be a little bit more likely for this year. So I don't know what his 2023 production will be, but he can play a couple different positions, has a really great offensive bat. But I think Edward is the type of guy that will be up at some point this year and he gets the uh, inaugural Logan O'Hoppy award. Yeah, Julian was uh I, I kind of it was fun it was interesting watching him in the the home run derby because uh he was sort of out of place. It just yeah. not his type of event really. And you know, no matter what he was trying to do, uh he just couldn't help but go oppo center with his approach in the derby, which you know, you're not gonna win a home run derby. Um wearing out the the opposite center field wall. Uh, but um, I mean, that's kind of a testament to like his swing um, and just his aptitude as a hitter that he's just so dialed in on that. Uh, he's got the most beautiful technical swing too. And it's also one of those where he can get under it and he can really pull like launch angle in, which I think got him a little bit hyper aggressive because it's so funny because I know Cross and um, Clegg were kind of dinging him for how passive he was, and he would watch a lot of pitches, yet he could also get really hyper-aggressive. So I think this was an opportunity for him to test and kind of play with who he is as a hitter. Kind of reminds me, not physically at all, but you know how like Goldie doesn't try to hit homers, and like if you were to try to get him to hit homers, it would probably be a problem. That's kind of how Edward is. Like Just like you're saying, like he's just not built to be a crazy pull hitter, to do that type of stuff. He just, he has a system. He finds his pitch. 
He does not like to swing at bad pitches, and he really doesn't necessarily do it except into later counts. And he just has such a great presence to barrel the ball. It's why he could crush homers. He's, But he's not a natural home run hitter like, you know, Robert Perez or, or Heston Kerstead or anything like that. He's just kind of a complete player and he's sneaky steals bases. That's why I really like him. I really, really like him. And I would love to see him get an opportunity soon. And I, I think he'll be one of those guys that's going to jump on the scene for a lot of people. And he's going to really bump up a whole lot of prospect lists coming into this year. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the, the stolen bases. Uh, I mean, that's, it's sort of uh, becoming, this massive elephant in the room with a lot of prospects where guys who are 45 grade runners are putting up crazy stolen base numbers in the minors. And then the guys who are, you know, the the plus or plus plus runners are stealing like 60 bases in the minors. And I just, like the more and more I kind of, and especially this past season with like the rule changes and stuff, I just, and I know guys are going to have the potential to steal more in the big leagues this season than in past years, but I almost just don't even look at stolen base totals on prospects. Like in, unless it's like, I'm just, I'm much more interested in what's their speed grade than how many basis they steal in the minors because it just doesn't seem like it's all that actionable on a lot of these guys because not only are you running against uh, you know way worse batteries where like the pitchers don't know how to hold runners the catchers can't throw out runners but you just a lot of these guys just have the permanent green light in the minors and like you know you're just not going to see big league teams even with the new rules, they're not just going to be like, yeah, steal as many bases as you can. Um, it's so a good point. That's, that's it, been it's been a, a challenge good, for me. It's a good point with the fringe guys. It's funny that you say that because the guy that I always did that with was Zach Veen, where it was like, you see those stolen base numbers and I'm like, all right, you know, okay. And then he did it again and you're like, oh, okay. And then out here. So I agree with pretty much everything you said, but the only thing that I think that's interesting is, is like, I felt like this might have been, and I, I don't have this stat, and I really would love to have seen the AFL maybe do this. I feel like there were more stolen bases in the Arizona Fall League than there ever was in the past, ever. I don't know if that's a fact or not, but I feel it, and I'm going to say that that's a fact. And part of the reason behind that is like the rule changes. So I agree that I think there's kind of a permanent green light that's going on, and you know it kind of stacks up stats and stuff like that, but you know, with only being able to throw over twice and even a couple more inches on the base left, what we saw in the Arizona Fall League was might not have just been players padding stats, but might have been like, hey, we want to see what we can do with the new base paths and teams want their players to be more aggressive, that maybe this is going to be a trend that we're going to see with automatic strike calls and limited throwovers to hold batters and bigger bases it is the slightest edge back and also catchers kind of worse than ever. It seems like in, you know, their ability to throw, there are only two really good catchers out here that could throw out runners. It was Henry Davis and Jefferson Cuero. Everybody else was garbage, which also kind of led to the inflated stolen base numbers. So I think that's interesting to see that maybe we are coming onto a wave in the future where you're going to see teams a lot more hyper aggressive about it. And I agree with the speed stuff though. I will tell you something that opened my eyes was like Zach Veen. Because I don't know what 
speed numbers Zach Veen drops right now, but he was unique in that he is such a long bodied, lengthy guy that he could get the, with his stride, it was like a gazelle. He could get a lead off that no other player could get. He's very boppy. He bops around on the base pass. He's very wiry and stuff like that. And even if his pop time or if his, um, if his run times don't jump out, he could get these incredible reads on pitchers and would all and catchers and would also have this, um, this lead off that no other player would have. And it worked to his advantage where he could steal bases on a whim. He could just bam second and third. He did it like two or three times in the AFL where he would just instantly steal both of those bases because of the read that they have. So I don't know. I'm, I, I think it's safer to not go bonkers about stolen base numbers. Like Austin Martin's 35 homers that could easily turn into 15 at the major league level. If a team doesn't let them run, but at the same time, I'm open to the potential of a stolen base renaissance with how much the minors has been pressed and how many players are running and the new rules being advantageous towards them running that maybe we're going to see a little bit of an increase, but you know, who the hell knows, man. Yeah. I think uh, with Veen specifically, I'm kind of, I, I, I'm now I'm sort of open to the idea that he could steal 20. Um, and I was only kind of, penciling in like maybe 10. Um, I legit think he can steal 40. Like I, I know that seems crazy. And um, just based on everything of what we've seen, especially with Rockies prospects and stuff, I really think after seeing how aggressive he is, how he wants to steal that I re and, and the contact based swing that was, I walked away. One of the most impressive players to me was Veen out here. And I don't see him like Austin Martin, even though his body, I don't think has really progressed in a couple years. I don't see him quite the same in that, like, I think he can add and will add muscle. And he is such a contact base hitter. Now, I won't be surprised if he is a 15 homer at the major league level, but 30 plus stolen bases, like a, like a Starling Marte-ish type of player. But I really, really think what I see out of him is not someone that wants to hit a lot of homers. He swings across his body. He is, he'll choke up. He wants to get on base and he wants to steal aggressively. Now the team may halt that, but um, I went, I was kind of like you. I just didn't think the stolen, I thought he was going to just age right out of that body would grow. And it's just not. And I think it's such an important part of his game that I really, really do think he can steal 30 plus at the major league level. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, if I, that, that would be pretty crazy if he did that. Um, I went back and looked at the, Rockies uh stolen base leaders this past year and uh Garrett Hampson led the team with 12 Ryan McMahon was second with seven um and that's but, the problem right there it's like yeah. a philosophy thing that's what the Diamondbacks had stupid Tori Lovello would do the same thing where it's like let these guys run let Cattell Marte run and then finally this year they started to let guys run I mean Rojas and uh, McCarthy both went over 20 stolen bases like man I don't know why that manufacture of runs and being aggressive on the base pass has moved away, especially for teams like the Rockies. They should be hyper aggressive with players that can steal bases. So the Rockies are the suppression more than I think the talent is for those stolen bases. That's a great point to bring up. Okay. So uh, who, and it, do, it doesn't have to be limited to like a pitcher, but um, I, and for the record, I am not out on Caleb Killian. Uh, I think he's actually, 
getting discounted a little too much, like in, in draft and holds and stuff based on what he did in the big leagues last year. Uh, but he was someone who the best time to probably trade Killian in a dynasty league was either right after the AFL or once people like me were really reacting to his AFL and uh, ranking him uh, aggressively uh, later in the off season. Is there a prospect who you think like now based on what they did in the AFL now might look like the best time to sell when we look back in, in hindsight, like a year from now, Ah, this might not be popular then if you put it like that, because there's no pitcher that qualifies for that. Like, you know, the Caleb Killian award I might've given if I was thinking about, you know, kind of an unknown pitcher that was good here. I might've said Connor Thomas, I just thought that he could be a starter, but if you want to talk about a player to maybe sell now, this might not be super popular, but it might be Matt Mervis, you know, um, I don't think there's any guarantees he's given that first base spot uh, as much as everybody wants him to. They're talking to every first baseman under the sun. Matt Mervis's power is absolute for sure. I think there's some questions about like, you know, the body long term you could take a look at. I saw some Torkelson like tendencies there, though. He didn't really strike out a whole bunch. He could just kind of swing through some pitches and instead of striking out, he hit it in the ground. Like I think he's a, an immense player. But my point is, is he's got a redraft ADP that is going to travel inside the top 200 right now. And he, at this moment, in most people's minds, has a gig. That could be taken away pretty quick with the Cubs signing a Jose Abreu or whoever the hell they're going to sign. Maybe they bring him in as a DH. Uh, I think he played okay first base, nothing crazy. But I don't know. If, you, if you're asking the question, who's a guy whose value is at an absolute peak right now? I think you could theorize that it's him and you could maximize on that. The problem is, is he is going to get a chance and he will be beloved and he does have stupid power that there might be a, a bigger window once he gets the call up. But in a short six month term here, if they go and sign Jose Abreu, that value and stock is going to tank. And I, I do think there might be a few questions to ask, even though like, a dude going from high A to triple A and lowering his strikeout percentage at every single level and playing well in the AFL, like that answers a lot of questions. He was almost the, I think he was near the top as, as far as homers go. I think he was tied maybe. Yeah, he was tied with six, but he hit 262 while he was out here, which was which was all right. He was probably a little bit tired. Uh, the other one I could throw out is maybe Heston Kerstead if you want to talk about value right now. That's not someone who's going to really change in there. Uh, value like Mervis potentially could. I mean, Mervis' stock could go up if the team just says, hey, we're going to give Mervis an opportunity. It will go down if they sign Abreu as a first baseman and give him a long-term contract. People are really going to get pissed and have some questions. So I don't know, man. I, I think I would throw out Mervis. I don't think Mervis is should be anointed quite as he is. He was solid. He was good. He had good power, but he, I mean, he didn't dominate out here. He didn't absolutely dominate. He just hit some freaking tanks you know, on mistake pitches, on bad pitching that got out there. That was the best thing he did, by the way. It wasn't like, oh my God, he was amazing and he was hitting 350 and he was hitting double and triples and he was showing this and that. It's like he didn't strike out because he wasn't swinging through pitches. He didn't play a ton. He had 61 at bats and he destroyed mistakes, which there's a lot of mistakes out here in the AFL. So very good prospect, but this might be a peak value time. Yeah, I, I updated my trade block in a dynasty league uh, yesterday, I think, and put 
Julian and Mervis on the block, uh, just to see. I mean, I'd. Did you get any would, bites? Any uh, not yet, but I, I, um, I think you just you should be willing to on guys where there's some un, there's some uncertainty and. Uh, just kind of given where those guys are in terms of age and how crowded the rosters are. Uh, if you can get something that's really going to help your team um, and you're actually selling high, you're not just selling just to sell them. If totally. you're actually selling high, I think it makes sense. Uh, I think, you know, even if they sign Jose Abreu, I think Abreu is just kind of the DH um but I hope so. I think the best time to sell Mervis might actually be like March 25th, March 20th. Um, when, when he's got the first base gig, if they give it to him and he hasn't played major league games. Cause he's going to rake in spring training, I think. Um, and I just, I think it's going to really look primed for him um, in late spring training. Um, but you know, he could also just be a top 10, top 12 first baseman. So, um, yeah, just maybe see what's out there. But I, I definitely think it's it's not it's not uh, unwise to mention Mervis as a potential sell high. Um, yeah. I mean, when like two months ago, I thought that I was going to be able to get Mervis around pick 300 in my late March drafts and <laughs> How how wrong I was. Not uh, so much now. <laughs> um, who is this year's Ezekiel Tovar? Um, and it might might even be someone you've already mentioned, but like you know, Tovar. Obviously, a lot of people like him now for dynasty, but also redraft. Uh, but he was bad in the AFL last year. I we talked about him on the I think previewing the AFL. I expected Tovar to be bad last year because he was so young and hadn't done really much in the minors at all to suggest he was ready for that type of assignment. Uh, he was bad in the AFL and then he was awesome at double a. Uh, so, I mean, the t- you could have really bought low on Tovar. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't even kept in some dynasty leagues last off season. Um, and now he's like a top 20 prospect. Uh, is there anyone like that where their poor showing in the AFL Maybe even you don't even have to trade for them. Maybe you just pick them up or maybe they, they, they just fall out of everyone's sort of top 100 or something like that. And you can trade for them on the cheap. So there's a couple. Um, this might be a weird one, but I kind of think Jason Dominguez is in that realm. I thought this was yeah, I think I thought this was too advanced for him on where he had gone. I've cited this in a couple places. A lot of people wanted me to trash uh, Jason at every time. And I never did because like. I thought he had good at bats. You know, he, he had like the thing here was, I was looking for, for him to just be swinging through every dang pitch, you know, not be able to recognize breaking balls, never sit on a pitch, never take a pitch, just swing through the top of everything, not show any power or anything like that. And listen, he had a horrid AFL. He was one of the worst hitters. He had the third lowest batting average here in 159. He didn't hit a homer. Um, though, he had a couple, he had one that was a homer. It was actually like the very first night of the AFL. I got it. And there was like 40 mile an hour winds that took the ball in and he absolutely crushed it. And it would have been a homer. 
but I was impressed with his plate presence. I was impressed with him taking pitches, taking balls. Um, he hit some stuff into the ground. He had a lot of doubles straight to center that would either get caught or ended up becoming a double. Uh, he played bad defense though, which I really hated out here. There was a scout that cited his effort level was really bad here. And I think that's partial because he's a young kid. He's a young kid that got all the attention that wasn't deserved. He was in the fall stars game. There's literally never been a least deserving player in a fall stars game than Jason Dominguez. Hands down. No, not one iota of him deserving it. But I do think this is an AFL coming off of a solid season that enough people are going to tank him again and the value will come down tank. And I thought he was incredible on the base path. He ended up stealing five bases. I mean, per perspective, he only had 11 hits here, but he stole five bases and he flies on the base paths and he showed some really good plate presence that I kind of think he's the Tovar. It's not going to be the same thing because Tovar got major league time. He will not. But I thought he qualified on that. I'd also say it's kind of the young guys. Davison De Los Santos is another one. Really bad AFL, but there's no way he belonged here whatsoever. He just didn't need to be here. Um, a side one I'm going to throw up that I think is closer. Now, I think this one is closer to De Los Santos. Or, I'm sorry, to Tovar. But he got more juice. But if you end up looking at the numbers, he wasn't quite there. Is Jackson Merrill. Jackson Merrill ended up hitting like 260 and kind of really fell off. But that's a guy that I think could mimic. He didn't have as bad of a AFL as like Tovar did. And Merrill was a little bit overmatched, but I believe he was the youngest player here and showed some really, really big veteran stuff. Hit a homer, tons of singles, can steal bases, big body guy, going to be a team leader. And rumors abound that he actually might be someone the Padres look at later in the season. So I think he could have the trajectory, but he didn't have his bad. He didn't have the Tovar bad season like Jason Dominguez did. So those are a couple players to sit on. Yeah. Uh, I think De Los Santos is maybe two months younger than Merrill, um, but Merrill, De Los Santos and Dominguez okay. are all 19 still. Uh, so certainly a aggressive assignment to the AFL for those guys. Um, with with Dominguez, I think my he is one hundred percent proven uh this year that he's got really big tools uh and yeah. a ton of talent. But the makeup issues are something I've been hearing about all season. Like he kinda he seems like he's sort of like a spoiled only child type of type of guy he's, where he's very he, entitled there is an yeah. entitlement that he would walk around he was obviously very focused on by fans and stuff like that and he didn't really like he had he had this weird presence about him on very contractual things you know he didn't want to do this he didn't want to do that he's got these deals he's focused on the on the you know the the lights and the cameras and not running out stuff. I mean, he had probably not running out to first probably had three or four balls. I personally saw that he absolutely just biffed in center field. Yeah. Th there is like, you don't want to make it out. Like it's a makeup thing. Like he's a bad person or anything like that. But there is like you were saying, it's like a only child. And there's an entitlement that follows him that really doesn't, I don't think sit well. Yeah. I mean, you just, it's not, a, it has nothing to do with like, is he like, I don't, I don't care if a guy I mean, it'd be nice if all these guys signed autographs and, and stuff like that for, for kids and made time for everyone and stuff. Sure. But I, I'm not, I'm never going to downgrade a guy as a prospect because they're an asshole. But if 
they aren't going to work and put the work in and understand that they have to put the work in. Like that's, that's what I meant by the makeup is like, is and I agree gonna- with that. No, and I, and I took that as how is exactly how you were saying And that's kind of that entitlement that there's, there are things going on around that are not baseball that you want to be baseball. You want this guy to eat and breathe baseball. You want him to see mistakes to change and focus. And if he doesn't want it, I would rather him bow out of false star games and not give attention to fans and do this and that to focus on baseball. And that doesn't really seem like that's the thing. It seems like there's just a lot that's going on out there. And there's still these warts that you just don't want to be there. You don't, I mean, hustle, like it's not hard to hustle. It's not hard to work on that defense and maybe you're tired. And that's a big thing. Like there were some dudes that were like openly exhausted out here and kind of over it and kind of see this as like a, you know, like a, I don't know, kind of like first pitch, you know, it's a bunch of guys getting together, hanging out, having fun, doing what they like. It's just for an extended period of time and they're kind of done with it. So you could kind of see it as the same way, but I think you're on it. It's, you don't want to make it out to what it's not. And you're not, it's just, there are some stuff that not just us were saying scouts were saying like, you wanted to see some effort level. He's also one of the younger players here. You know, have an example of playing up to the expectations that are on you and playing up to these guys that are hustling. Guys like Matt Mervis are hustling. Mason Auer, one of the most physically gifted and workout dudes. He would always have these big giant resistant band things that he would carry out to the field. He'd hook them up. He'd be working out. I mean, you know, set an example. And that example wasn't really there. So I kind of agree with that. But that's also immaturity. Yeah, ours a, a physical freak. Uh, he he, he kind of remind, he reminds me a little bit of uh, Josh Lowe uh, for for good and for bad. Um, yeah, that's a, then, that's a good comp. Yeah, that's a good comp. And then uh, I I love. I mean, De Los Santos was really getting kind of bagged on by the uh, prospect uh, or the the scouts um, that were at or talking to, to first pitch um, just for him, like having no idea what's going on. Um, so I think, I think his value will, like if you believe in him sort of rebounding next year, I think you could definitely acquire him at a reasonable price this off season. And I would, and I would, by the way, so highly talked about by many diamondback pitchers that I talked to and, and the team as well. And it's just, this is a young dude. I think it was really overmatched and kind of agree. Like, I don't know. He really quite knew what he was doing out here. He played a lot of first base and he was just swinging at fastballs and it's kind of classic young dude stuff, seeing stuff that he did not see at lower levels. So I don't know to ding him. I think it's a little wild. So if he tanks, he's a massive buy for me. And I, I think you nailed it with Merrill uh, because he was if if Jackson Merrill had been one of the five or seven best statistical performers in the AFL, I think you would see him. I think some people would be putting him in like the top 25. I mean, yes, I, I know Prospects Live already had that uh, uh, data driven article that was making a case for him up near the top. Uh, I know uh, Eric Longenhagen was um, basically saying that like it's Merrill and Jordan Walker, one B one a for who the best prospect out there was. So uh, a lot of people are ready to sort of push Merrill to the moon, but because he didn't put up, you know, really eye popping numbers out there, 
you could still trade for him, but I do think the people that have Merrill in dynasty leagues are probably going to at least value him as top 50, top 60 ish prospect. So, um, I don't think he, you know, the, his value is not sort of where Tovar's was entering last season, but you could easily see by like Memorial day, Jackson Merrill's a consensus top 20 prospect. Yeah. I think that's where we're heading. I agree. Uh, so this one's kind of just sort of a, a more, um, macro question but you know it it honestly was probably the worst uh, you know collection of talent i've seen um in the six or so years i've been to the afl and it's not a knock on the guys that were there necessarily but more a testament to the guys who weren't there uh you, obviously jordan lawler went home with the injury uh brendan davis got hurt but in any other year prior to 2022, I think you would have seen maybe both of Corbin Carroll and Gunnar Henderson in the AFL in anticipation that they would be making their big league debuts this upcoming April. But because of the new um, incentives for teams, I think we're just going to see the Carrolls and the Hendersons, the guys who are the very best prospects and are basically big league ready. You're going to see all those guys debuting late in the season now instead of early the next season. And so is is this just kind of the new normal where you're basically hoping for a couple Jordan Walker, Jordan Lawler types who are, you know, 19, 20 years old, um, elite prospects, but not guys that got quite high enough organizationally to debut the prior season? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I had projected Gunner and Corbin making the AFL, especially because Corbin missed time this year. And I kind of didn't even care about the major league stint. But then, you know, it kind of played out exactly that way. You know, one of the things that I'm open to there being a little bit more maybe than this past year, but I do think this is the kind of trend. Unfortunately, so I was reading up, I think Prospects Live had an article on this that you know, the rules, the incentive rules are actually incentivized to the person that wins the rookie of the year. There was something on the table that was the top three vote getters in rookie of the year, but that was tied apparently to the draft, to the international draft. So that didn't happen. So the only actual incentive is for teams to have a guy that can win the rookie of the year, being on the roster and being a top 100 ranked prospect. So I kind of actually think it's a little bit less than before. Than we thought. I think teams aren't going to be like, you know, oh, every team is throwing out their top prospect on the back end to get playing time so they can get rookie of the year, da da da. But at the same time, I think what you have to look for for the AFL is you got to look for guys that have had significant playing time missed. And even that, that's not a guarantee. Grayson Rodriguez made all the sense in the world to be one of those type of guys, and it didn't happen. That I think with, like you're saying, the the new incentivized rules that are out there, this collective bargaining agreement teams breaking camp with their prospects and their best players being able to potentially buy them out even more that you're just going to see the top guys get run at the back end of the year. Most likely teams are going to vote against putting the guy in the AFL. There might be an instance or two, but I think we're going to get a lot of what we got. You know, I mean, the Matt Mervis types, the the Heston Kerstead types, the Jordan Lawlers, the guys that miss significant time that need a little bit more run that are low A to double A, those type of players that aren't close to the majors. Those are the type of guys, the guys like Gunner and Corbin that can really break camp 
they're just not going to be there. The, and I don't really know why, because it's the, the finishing school is the thing that always makes sense. But um, hopefully we get more depth. Uh, I'm really I was really shocked at the pitching. The pitching is what shocked me and how the lack of great pitching that was out here, especially if teams are trying to be more competitive and get to bring guys up sooner. You would think, you know, with the advent of guys like Spencer Strider, you would have wanted you would have wanted teams to bring out Grayson Rodriguez or Emerson Hancock or whatever, but just wasn't the case. So, yeah, I think this is kind of a template to what we're going to see in the future. And the best case scenario is you're going to see those like really high performing low a guys, maybe get a little bit of run, which you would have thought maybe a Jackson trio or something like that. Like that's a prime example. I don't know. Will we, I feel like Jackson trio is the headline player for the AFL next year, but how they moved him kind of might be in the majors in July. I, I really don't know. So it's uh, I think it's a little bit more of what we saw than uh, the past years where we're seeing the elite Acuna's and Vladimir Guerrero's. I think it's to be hard to see the top two or three prospects in baseball in the AFL again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Churio would probably be sort of best case scenario for like the headliner next year. Um, you know, maybe uh, – maybe like Drew Jones or James Wood or Jackson holiday are just so good and climb to high a slash double a, and they get the nod and maybe they're sort of the headliners. Um, I am interested. You you're uh, out there in Arizona. Like what do you think Jordan Lawler's timetable looks like now? Because he's my number three prospect behind Carolyn Henderson. Uh, same here. Obviously. I made that move after getting to see him so much. I made that exact same move. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just love watching him. Um, but how, how quick, how much can he push uh, this upcoming season? Um, can he sort of follow the Corbin Carroll path of double AA, A, triple A majors? Or is it exceedingly likely that he does not get a cup of coffee this year? Uh, I think it is the exact same path as Corbin Carroll. I think they were primed. I think that injury that I don't think an injury really set anything back because he's not going to miss any spring training time. I think they would have liked to seen a few more at bats. He kind of tapered. He was the first week. He was the best player in the AFL hands down. He was making contact at every single point. He was making play after play, stealing bases, hitting homers. He was showing off, played amazing defense as well. He was the complete package. He slowed off a little bit, which I think the Diamondbacks would like to see more. But I think he is 100% on the Corbin Carroll path. And I think the Diamondbacks recognize their timetable right now. They're bringing up a lot of these young pitchers, Ryan Nelson, Drew Jamison. Mm -hmm. I think you'll get Brandon Fatt soon. You've got Corbin Carroll up. So it's like you don't want to stagger too far between all of these players. You want to get them in a similar um, relative timeline so you're maximizing all of these young contracts when you're trying to win. And they were aggressive with Lawler. I mean, this is hyper aggressive. Yeah. He got up to double A and put him to the AFL. I think it is the the telling sign of telling signs. I think he starts at double A. And if he dominates after six weeks, I think he goes up to triple A. And I think in July, there is a legit shot. We are on the clock for Jordan Lawler. We will be on the clock for when he could come up. They'll probably manipulate in some capacity. But Carroll services them for their potential first round pick for rookie of the year in the NL. And then if you bring him up, maybe July is too soon. I think they could do something similar where it's in that August area, August to September. They bring up Lawler. 
to manipulate him for the following season. So they're potentially getting themselves more picks. And then Drew Jones could be the next path of that. So they've kind of, if, if they're slick enough, they might have this timeline where every single year they're bringing up a new guy and they're being competitive to the next season to acquire another pick. So I think Lawler does see playing time. I would almost bank on it next year. Yeah. If you're uh, in, in one of those deep draft and holds, uh, you know, getting maybe 115 at bats from Lawler at the end of the season is something you could factor in uh, with one of your final picks. Uh, quickly, before we get to the this uh, the ADP buy sell segment, just how fun is it being a, a D backs fan right now? Like it just it seems like there's just kind of uh, I mean you mentioned the pitchers they have come in. I mean the the Carroll Lawler Jones trio is my favorite young trio in the game. Um, what's, what's it like? It's pretty cool, man. I mean, I've been with this team since they started here in Arizona. I lived here before it started and they bought a team, they bought a championship. They had some baby back runs, but as a prospect person and a diamondback fan, it's incredible. And it's incredible. The talent they're putting out. I mean, the diamondbacks have long suffered, you know, since Luis Gonzalez hasn't been here, they really suffered from just recognition of talent, having one of those big names to build around. And they got multiple Corbin Carroll is, I think Corbin Carroll is going to be the leader of this team. He might not be the superstar of superstars when all is said and done, but I think he will be the leader. He's a tutelage guy to a lot of these young guys and working with them. Um, he's physically transformed his body. I was just at a, I think I told you about that. I was a friend of mine has a business where he has an exclusive uh, uh, deal with Corbin Carroll. And I got to sit in on the signing and hang with Carroll for a bit. And he just physically changed his body. He's just such a smart player. You've got him. You've got Jordan Lawler, who I think has star potential. Drew Jones might be the face of this organization. They've got great pitching coming up. For Diamondbacks and prospect stuff, it's awesome. All I'm praying, I just want the Diamondbacks to like fully open up the back of their facility. It's kind of been wishy-washy since oh, COVID yeah. because I just want to get back there and see all of them. The quad area, you can kind of get to, but just getting back to the full length, if we can get it this spring training, it's going to be amazing seeing Drew Jones and Lawler and Carroll and Alec Thomas and you know maybe Christian Robinson will come back. I know he's he's been in the backfields, but he can't still physically do anything under some of those ties. They've just got talent littered throughout the system, so I'm pretty stoked. All right, uh, time for the new segment where me and a guest uh, do a buy-sell on a round of 15-team NFBC ADP. Uh, we started last week with Sarah Sanchez and the 11th round. Uh, we're going to head to the 12th round now. Uh, there's one uh, repeat guy, uh, Tony Gonsolin, uh, who his ADP has has slipped enough in the past week that he's now a 12th round guy instead of an 11th round guy. Uh, but Tony Gonsolin, Matt Chapman, Anthony Rizzo, Cal Raleigh, Gregory Soto, Jonathan India, Ian Happ, Drew Rasmussen, Jake Cronenworth, Whit Merrifield, Alec Bohm, Jorge Mateo, Charlie Morton, Jordan Montgomery, and Mitch Hanniger. That that makes up your 12th round of NFBC ADP. Uh, obviously, we're talking about uh, 30 catchers started, which is why Raleigh's going that high. There's always going to be premium on closers in these draft and holds, which is why uh, Soto's going that high. 
Um, and I, I send it over to you, Welsh. Uh, if you got to buy one of these guys at their 12th round ADP, who are you most excited to get? Man, I think there's some good values in here. Um, I kind of could get into rebuying Jonathan India at this cost. I don't know if I would be hyper aggressive about it. I could get into that. I think Ian Happ is solid. Charlie Morton is solid. Jordan Montgomery is solid. I don't mean to be naming all the players. I really like Drew Rasmussen. So maybe this is cheap, but I kind of feel like at the 12th round value, though, getting back in on Tony Gonsolin, I probably would buy back into that. I was a pretty big regression guy all season long when you would look at, um, you know, you would go and you know, look at all his numbers, Babip to XFIP. You would just see like, these are going to regress. These are going to come back down. But at the end of the day, you won 16 games with the Dodgers. You got an opportunity to repeat that. Strikeout numbers weren't immense. Walk numbers weren't insane. I do think he's going to regress as far as the ERA goes, but he was one of those guys all season long. We're like, all right, it's going to stop. It's going to stop. It's going to stop. It had like two weeks where he kind of fell apart and then he picked it right back up. So I don't feel like we usually get this type of production at 12th round. So I think I'm going to buy on Tony Gonsolin. But like I said, I I acknowledge there's a couple other players in here that I dig, um, you know, hitter wise, Ian Happ, Soto, maybe Rizzo re-signing. I really like Drew. I think Drew Rasmussen also is kind of um, a little bit underrated, even though the strikeout numbers aren't there. You know, projections of a sub four ERA, I think, can get back into the low threes or something like that. So I like him, but I'll uh, maybe cheaply say Tony Gonsolin. Yeah, this this does seem to me all the players I'm considering as as my favorite buys here. Um, and through three drafts, I don't have any of these fifteen players. Mm. Um, so I guess I'm just going. I'm either reaching on someone here or. Uh, someone's falling to me here, but um, I, I think the starting pitching is the uh, is where the value is. Uh, Agreed. Gonsolin, Rasmussen, Charlie Morton, Jordan Montgomery specifically. I think those four, uh, getting them in the twelfth round, it's it's pretty solid. I mean, Charlie Morton last year got you. 205 strikeouts uh he's he's old i think that that's, that's yeah the, it's the a falling main, knife thing it's like when is it gonna stop? yeah um i i think my guy here is jordan montgomery uh, i love that one yeah i love it you know the kind of flattening of the schedule doesn't give him quite the same bump for for getting those nl central teams as he got last year uh after the trade but uh, that's a good, you know, obviously good park to pitch in, uh, good defense. And I think that's a, that's a good spot to get wins. Uh, I, I, the more and more I kind of look at where I struggled last year and, um, where the wind sort of shook out last year, I, I am okay kind of drafting wins or chasing wins in the draft. And by that, I just mean guys who are going to pitch five plus innings on good teams. And I think uh, Morton qualifies Montgomery qualifies Gonsolin certainly qualifies like he showed last year. Um, but I, I really like what Montgomery did um, after the trade last year. Um, but I think you can't really go wrong with, with any of those, those four starting pitchers there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Who is the guy of these 15 that you are not interested in at all 
in the 12th round. Uh, Whit Merrifield. I am done. I'm done with Whit Merrifield. Uh, we don't need to do this experiment anymore. I think you can find uh, stolen bases that do something anywhere else. He ended uh, 250 batting average, 11 homers, 16 stolen bases. He's projected with worse numbers this year. Uh, 15 stolen bases on steamer, nine homers, maybe more of a platoon. Uh, I just don't need, and I think you could actually look and you could say, wow, Whit Merrifield might be one of the biggest values. It's just not. It's empty. It's a lot of empty stuff. It's not elite batting average. It's not elite runs. Maybe if he was playing full time, uh, that could change. Uh, but none of it is elite. The homers are down. The stolen bases don't mean much. I'm not a big Jorge Mateo guy, but Jorge Mateo at least puts up a couple big factors here. So I'm I'm pretty out on Whit Merrifield wherever it is. I think he is average at best rosterable. Yeah, uh, I've, I think I've mentioned this uh, maybe on the pod, but definitely on the radio show. I was uh, I was a never Whit Merrifield guy up until last season, and that's probably my biggest regret of um, same entire, here. Entire twenty twenty two fantasy baseball was that I somehow talked myself into getting in on Merrifield for the very first time, and and it just no way to justify it. Um, no way to spin it. Just terrible um, process by me uh, to take him at ADP last year. And uh, I'm, I'm probably not going to have any of him, um, but I, uh, the guy that I'm probably least interested in, in this range is Gregory Soto. Uh you know, you need saves, but I think Gregory Soto is kind of a perfect example of why you should be willing to pay up for saves. And I think we're already sort of seeing uh, rumors, you know, that Soto and like Joe Jimenez were mentioned as guys that might be on the move in, in some trade rumors uh, over the last like 24 hours. Uh, just you'd need him to save at least 20 games to, to be worth this cost. And for a guy that has a career 13% walk rate uh, and had a one, three, eight whip last year. I mean, I just think this is a, a quite a premium um, for someone where by the time we get to opening day, he could very easily be someone's like seventh inning man, uh, let alone the, the tiger's closer. So uh, he's my fate in this range. I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. All right, Welsh. Uh, why don't you let people know where they can follow you and uh, what stuff you've kind of been uh, working on uh, over the last like week or so? Sure. Uh, you can find me uh, at Is It The Welsh on Twitter if you want. You can see tons and tons of videos I've got from the AFL. Uh, InThisLeague.com is where my Patreon is at if you guys are looking for stuff. Within the next week, I will have an update to the top 500 prospect list, and I will also be updating my dynasty list. Next month, I'm looking at conducting a Prospect 1 P1ADP that I do, the top 280P for prospects. Uh, I do multiple drafts. James always takes part in it. I'll probably be doing that uh, in the next you know week and a half or so, probably right after Thanksgiving, and that'll be on the Patreon. And Prospect 1 Podcast, just go and subscribe to that. It's been a little wishy-washy during the AFL. 
Uh, we're getting back on schedule and we're kind of getting out of AFL stuff. I'm going to end that with some final other thoughts that I've got and then getting into just episodes of talking with great guys like you. So prospect one on your podcast app in this league on the Patreon to check out my stuff and uh, just Twitter. Is it the Welsh? That's it. Awesome, man. Yeah. Keep up the great work on the pod. Uh, sorry. We didn't get to hang out more at uh the Arizona Fall League, but uh, this was great to be able to, to catch up here. Uh, so yeah, man. Really we'll, we'll make up for it with more podcasts. We'll just, I'll just have you on more and more. I'll use more of your time <laughs> this year for Prospect One. We'll just do more podcasts to make up for it. Sounds good, buddy. Uh, right, take man. it easy. And uh, I'll be back with another episode uh, right before Thanksgiving. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.